Welcome to the Future Fix. The promise of game-changing data and technology to improve our lives is ubiquitous, and the field of placemaking is no exception. In a way, good placemaking is always relied on data. Who frequents a place, in what numbers, at what time of day, and so on. Technology, too, is not new to placemakers. There are just more potential uses. But many people are looking to push the boundaries of what we can do with data and tech to provide the best possible public spaces for the widest variety of people. How do we make the most of a place? How do we make it useful and welcoming? How do we maintain it, program it, and make it responsive? That's the world of digital placemaking, and that's what we aim to find out. You're listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. This is Season 3 of The Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Each episode, we present community challenges and solutions and take you to places large and small from coast to coast to coast. In this episode, we take a look at how technology can be used to reach people and empower them to shape the public spaces they rely on. For this, we speak to Farhan Ladhani, co-founder and CEO of Digital Public Square. DPS looks at a range of digital tools to reach out and engage with people about the way their neighborhoods are shaped and how services are provided. This could mean a different approach to consultation or even interactive online tools to help people visualize the possibility of the spaces they use and love. So Farhan, to begin, I was hoping that you could help me define digital placemaking, because I think a lot of this lingo, uh, uh, you know, with the, the advancement in technology and data, it's kind of mercurial. So what do you think of when you think about the term digital placemaking? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked the question that way, because when you first started out, how do you define it? I'm, I was I'm hesitant, because I think it actually means so many things to uh, so many different people. Mm-hmm. When I think about digital placemaking, I'm really thinking about the way in which digital tools can enhance or increase the way in which people can both enjoy very particular places uh, or spaces, the way that they can contribute to how those places or spaces can be used by communities. And I hope over time, increasingly, how digital tools can help increase the the way in which those places or spaces are governed so that people can have a much more active uh, participative role in the way in which those spaces are used uh, to improve the quality of their lives. As you say, it could be many things, but is there sort of a 
a project ongoing in Canada in municipality, big or small, that uh, you kind of look to as uh, something you can uh, get people excited about the idea? Say, well, look over here. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know if I would even give you just a single one. What I would say is I think that there are a lot of municipalities, and I've had the privilege of talking to a few of them recently, where I was at an event with ICWI Canada that was looking at communities that are looking at the challenge of sustainability over the course of you know, the next generation and more and beyond that, and talking about the role of digital in their communities. Um, and what I saw actually remarkably was many communities doing a wonderful job of trying to find better ways to foster uh, meaningful engagement in the way in which their spaces are being used from the perspective of trying to address all sorts of challenges that they face, whether that be around the way in which climate is affecting those communities, whether that be around the way that they're building resilience in those communities to all sorts of challenging and pressing issues, or the way in which they're trying to increase the effectiveness of the use of those spaces. And many of them thinking hard about how digital can complement each and every one of those efforts from communities large and small. And I think that that's the part that I found, frankly, most remarkable is that it's not just big communities. It's not only uh, larger metropolitan centers that are thinking hard about this. They've got a distinct set of challenges, certainly, but communities of all sizes are thinking about how to drive the way in which digital tools can increase the connective tissue by and amongst members of those communities, and then how those municipalities can benefit from that increased active participation to improve the economic, political, and social fabric that exists in those neighborhoods and in those communities. So I wouldn't say that there's a single one case example. My takeaway actually is there's a lot that's being tried that people are very much looking to the way in which digital tools can be used to improve some of their efforts and then others to kind of radically change them, to radically change the way that communities can participate in them. That's happening right here in the city of Toronto where I live too, and I'm happy to talk to you about one example of that um, that we've had uh, in our own experience at Digital Public Square. I mean, it seems to me that it's uh, a bunch of people who may not be familiar with the tools, but they're walking into a large art studio for the first time, and there's paintbrushes and and pencils and canvases and, you know, pottery clay, everything. Yeah, 100%. And, And I think that you still have the excitement of the opportunity that may be afforded by all of those supplies. How you put the pieces together make a really big difference in how people feel like they can recognize it, how they feel reflected in it. And then as a consequence, whether they're going to hang it up in their walls in their homes, but that the fact that people are approaching this very much as a tapestry that they feel like they can participate in building was one of the main takeaways that I had from engaging with so many of them. There's some real vibrance and excitement around the way in which uh, people might leverage these tools. And I think the pandemic has pushed that along a lot, actually, mm-hmm. because I think it helped to open up both the demand, the need for people to uh, embrace uh, the way that digital tools can be used in very helpful ways, certainly considering the risks, and we can talk about all of those too, um, but can be used in very helpful ways. But the necessity, given the way in which the pandemic um, shuttered people from face-to-face connectivity for some time, necessity drove, I think, a lot of uh, really positive forcing function in now picking up those paintbrushes and saying, we have to do something about this. Not only do I want to, I'm now forced to, I have to. 
Let's talk about you. Uh, what were you trying to address? Uh, you're the CEO and co-founder of Digital Public Square. What were you trying to address with uh, DPS? So Digital Public Square was based on the idea, the need for us to foster meaningful and oftentimes challenging conversations uh, is hard. It's hard in the best of cases. Mm-hmm. It's hard at the best of times. And it's gotten harder and harder, I would argue, as a function of the way in which our online, both identities are shaped and the platforms around which those identities are then shared with one another. There's a whole host of reasons as to why. But the bottom line is it, it was hard and it was getting harder. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we needed better ways to foster those meaningful conversations, even in the most challenging places and even on the most complex subjects, was really what gave birth to Digital Public Square as a way of trying to identify methods for us to be able to have those discussions, to find ways of including more people that would otherwise be party to conversations, maybe because they were limited from participating, maybe because it was difficult for them to participate, maybe because people were purposefully being excluded from the discussions, sometimes inadvertently uh, not able to participate the bottom line was we needed better ways to foster those conversations. And so Digital Public Square grew the idea that you could actually do that. You could do that in a simple and meaningful way. You could do it in a way that people wanted to participate to so increase the demand for participation in those very dialogues and do so in a way that, in, that ultimately meant that whatever outcomes, whatever decisions the communities would take or that participants in the conversations would take, that they would be more durable because they were appropriately challenged and ultimately included far more people. So the idea of Digital Public Square was, could we go build some of those approaches? Could we build some of those tools? And can we learn about how people wanted to participate in ways that we could create space for that participation that could tackle even the most difficult things? You mentioned a project in Toronto. I'm wondering, is is that the Annex project? Because I I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, it is. Can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the Annex project, how that began and and what that looks like? Yeah, you bet. So the Annex is this really amazing community that sits in and around uh, the University of Toronto's St. George campus. And so uh, it's a neighborhood that has really a high degree of diversity. You've got people that run across a a wide array of uh, socioeconomic conditions. You've got a community that has a really diverse demographic in terms of you know renters and owners. You've got a high degree of uh, diversity of people who come in out of the community uh, because of the way that the neighborhood is shaped and the, the number of people that come in and out for economic reasons and for uh, for going to participate in the, the work that people might do at the university or students that that attend the university. So you know a really high degree of diversity in the neighborhood. And as a result, they were trying to find ways of encouraging people to connect with the neighborhood association that is regularly trying to better understand the community in order to be able to reflect and represent their interests in ways that that reflect that diversity of the community. That uh, Annex Residents Association was trying to find better ways of doing that. They would host community meetings. They had a good newsletter. They had people consuming the content that they would discuss, but they were really looking to find ways of fostering greater connectivity with the Residents Association and to broaden the participation. And so in discussions with them, 
we took a project that we were piloting around a new way of fostering connectivity to the work of the organization to help people better understand the whole array of issues that the Residents Association was trying to tackle, that the kinds of inputs that they would provide to other stakeholders, members of the community, uh, neighborhood businesses, the city, the whole array of stakeholders that engaged with the Residents Association to give the community a better understanding of that work and how they could play a role in that work. And so we developed a framework some time ago around how to foster better engagement at the level of the community that allowed people to weigh in on the kinds of things that they were interested in. And we customized it in the context of the Annex Residents Association to give the community a better understanding of the work of the ARA and how that work ultimately impacted uh, the lives of the people in the community. So we asked them questions about, you know, the kinds of issues that the Residents Association was tackling from planning and development um, to the way in which it was tackling community safety uh, and the whole array of issues that the Residents Association was working on in over 10 weeks. That project was launched across the neighborhood. And what we learned was that uh, thousands of people actually checked out the platform to engage and about 20% of people actually decided to give it a try. So we had a high number of people that chose to, to participate. And as we started to learn about the results of this, what we learned was that three quarters of the people who started learning about a particular area of work or what we call the topic actually completed what we call an entire module. They decided to engage deeply on the issues. And almost half of those people actually decided to dive in deep onto two or more topics, meaning that what we were what we were learning was that actually there was a real demand for trying to understand the work that the Residents Association was undertaking across a whole array of subjects. Nearly everyone who chose to participate actually decided to share information about themselves voluntarily. You didn't need to, you didn't need to, you know, put your email address in. You didn't have to provide any person identifiable information. We're a very we're an organization that values privacy a great deal. And so as a result, we wanted to create the space for people to participate without being forced to share any information about themselves or any identifiable information, but people voluntarily decided to tell us about themselves as they learned more about the work that the community was doing. So that very active transparency opened up a channel for people to tell us more, and 9 out of 10 people actually voluntarily told us uh, more about themselves, and I can tell you a little bit about that in just a minute. Nearly three-quarters of people told us they felt that we actually learned something new about what the community was was doing. 40% of people identified as coming from groups that are underrepresented uh, in decision-making and high degree of participation from equity-seeking groups. In fact, um, nearly half of the participants self-identified as coming from an equity-seeking group. And that, and that matters to us because the goal very much was how do we broaden the array of participants that, we, that the, the Neighborhood Association heard from on a regular basis. And what we were seeing was that they were actually doing that, that they were hearing from a much broader array of people that might otherwise participate in their meetings or that they might oftentimes hear from, telling them not just what they think about the issues that the area is working on, telling them the kinds of issues that matter to them, but also telling them more about themselves. And I think the net impact of all of that is a much deeper understanding of the community that makes up the, the fabric of the of the annex, 
but then as a result, a much better way of representing the interests that they might have. And in doing so, as, as the community thinks about the choices that it makes, as the Residents Association thinks about the choices that it makes and the community that it represents, there's a much greater fidelity on the what makes up that community and how those people individually as well as collectively as part of a vast array of groups would think about the kinds of issues that the area has to tackle on a regular basis. And it really met the challenge in trying to better represent and reflect on the views and opinions of many more people from a diverse array of backgrounds into the decision-making that the ARA undertakes on a regular basis. And I think on that measure, really demonstrated the, the power that digital tools can have in fostering some of those types of conversations from a much broader array of people. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this project was a good way of uh, for the association to sort of take the pulse of its residents. Uh, but I, I wonder in the future if, if it could have utility for things like um, participatory budgeting, that kind of thing. I mean, that's to me, that's very much the future, right? Because part of this is how do you foster participation to begin? How do you get people interested? How do you feel? How do you give them the space to feel like they've got a voice? How do you give them the space to be able to influence the choices and decisions that the community is making? And then how do you close the feedback loop to show them exactly how their input leads to either the same or different outcomes that are more consistent with their needs and their interests? And in doing so, encourage them to participate more, drive more demand for participation so that you can get into uh, challenging issues like participatory budgeting, challenging issues like what to do with development in the neighborhood, challenging issues around how people would like the, the states to be better designed or reflect on the way in which they'd like the community to, to grow uh, over the course of the next 10 to 20 years. Those are, those are really important issues and, and they can be challenging. And so opening up space for people to feel like they can participate, that they can both understand the issues, find a way to have a voice in the issues, and then be able to do that on an ongoing basis is absolutely the direction that we hope this type of both platform can take and the direction that I think digital tools can very much afford. A challenge to all of this, I think, and I'm sure it's one that you consider, as you say, you're you're looking at ways to involve equity-seeking groups that may may not always be a part of the discussion in, in the status quo of uh, consultation, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I'm sure the idea of the digital divide and, and the fact that not everyone might have access to these kinds of technologies, uh, it probably keeps you up at night sometimes. It does. And, you know, I got to tell you, it was a question that really um, fo we focused on heavily 10 years ago when, you know, thinking about these issues. I'll say a couple of things. One, the, the divide certainly persists. You know, the, the availability and accessibility of um, information and tools persists. And just because people have now a phone that they might be able to use, the accessibility of the information and the content uh, remains to be a real challenge, right? So we develop and we, we as in like the, the universal we, people who produce content and people who um, produce information, try to do so in a way that's intended to be accessible to a particular audience or a group of audiences. But our ability to capture the feedback on what people actually do understand, on what they do reflect on in the context of what's shared with them, that they do uh, appropriately contest when they disagree with things, that they do tell you they have a high degree of confidence in because they believe the veracity of them, that they do believe that the sources of evidence that are provided reflect those that they might feel a high degree or low degree of trust in. 
all of those feedback loops, I think, are still really difficult for us to grasp at. And so as a consequence, even today, when we talk about that digital divide, it may not be necessarily in the form of, you know, physical devices because many more people have them. It may not be on the basis of their availability of a data plan or their ability to access a Wi-Fi um, network where they can get access to that content, though that still persist. They may not persist in the same numbers, but the question of accessibility of the content and the way in which people feel like those that content actually reflects them, I think that is a persistent challenge and one of which I think is actually growing, not getting smaller. So this is a kind of a big question, but, uh, you know, how can local governments of any size take advantage of these sort of uh, digital placemaking tools? And it seems like there's more and more of them every day. And then on the other side, you know, what do they need to be wary of, um, you know, talking about possible pitfalls or, or slippery slopes? That's a great question. So, uh, you know, I would say that there are, as you said, more and more of these tools available every single day. And they do some of them really similar things, some of them really novel things. Um, and I would say there isn't like one tool that you can use to do all the things. And that's okay. Uh, we're, at, we're at a time when there are lots of people trying many different ways to try to foster these types of outcomes. So I, my, my advice to them is get started. Mm-hmm. Like get started right now. If you're not starting, uh, get started right now. If you have started, Try, try many different approaches. Find a cluster or community of people that are willing to try with you. What I mean by that, find a group of people that are willing to share in the learning that you're trying to undertake at figuring out how to maximize the use of these tools to foster the kinds of outcomes you want with the community. Those early adopters are going to be incredibly helpful to giving you really useful, raw, and unadulterated feedback, meaning that they're able to give you their two genuine views and opinions about whether what you're trying to accomplish was actually something that worked, whether or not that the tool that they're trying to use is actually easy, whether or not it might appeal to the people that you're actually trying to reach. And in trying, you're going to figure out pretty quickly whether or not you're reaching your objectives and whether or not your objectives might be easily reached with one set of tools with one group of people, but ignores a whole other set of them, Mm -hmm. which is why I think you have to try many of them. Because the risk, of course, and we'll get to risks in a second, is, oh, it worked really, really well. Whatever tool it was worked really well at solving one particular problem. But did it actually engage the broader array of people that you might be trying to reach? Or did it work really well for some people and you still have other groups that you need to find alternative ways to get to? Don't forget about the fact that these tools might be really accessible for some and, and not very accessible for others. So trying a lot of them, um, I think there's one way to avoid that pitfall. When it comes to risk... I would say a couple of things. One, resources, right? Resources are always going to be a risk. And so thinking hard about the way in which you're measuring performance, thinking hard about what you're trying to accomplish and how you're going to see evidence of it will help you identify those tools and approaches that are really working for you and the ones that you can discard. You can waste a lot of time if you're not careful. And that's not something that any of us have. And the resources are certainly finite, particularly for municipalities. And so uh, my first piece of advice is get started and start trying. The second is make sure that you understand what you're trying to accomplish and how you're going to measure the impact that you're trying to reach because that'll help you reinforce whether you're moving things in the right direction or the or or ones that are just not as fruitful. I would also say that thinking about the way in which these tools can be used to foster engagement in the community can be really useful for all sorts of things from consultation through to participation on decision making through to the provision of information that might be really important for people to know. Don't think about them as only one thing. Think about them as being able to affect engagement across a whole array of issues. Because when you start to think about it that way, 
a couple of things happen. One, you start to think about participation in a, uh, in a in kind of a different way. You're not thinking about it as just, oh, I need people to weigh in on this one particular issue, or I need to tell people about this one particular event. You're thinking about it as a constant opportunity to foster that engagement, to produce really good participation outcomes. And that uh, solves a second problem, which is you don't need 100 tools to do 100 things. You can think about the ones which help you accomplish your objectives, but there may only be a couple of them. And that brings down the kind of resource barrier. And I got asked this at an event that I was talking at a couple of weeks ago for particularly small communities and municipalities that don't have you know, a chief data officer. They don't have 100 staff that can help uh, advance some of the use of some of these capabilities. I think there too, the solution is think about a couple of them that can help you address multiple challenges and then invest in those. Invest in those because many different parts of your organization, many different parts of your institution can use them. And if you couple that mindset of we're thinking about participation across the whole life cycle, along with the selection of a couple of tools that can be really useful for you with really clear identified outcomes, well, then all of a sudden your resource challenge becomes a lot more modest because you can apply the same sets of resources to accomplish many things. And two, I would argue that you're investing in the exact right place. Because what you're really doing is saying, we're going to try to understand our community much better so that when we ask them to collaborate, their collaboration produces outcomes that are much more durable, even through the tensions that invariably arise when you're going to seek decisions from community members that may have differing interests. The durability of those decisions is likely to be much greater. Well, Farhan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Really lovely to meet you. Thank you for uh, inviting me here, and I hope to talk to you guys again soon. All right. All the best. As technology evolves, so will ideas about how to harness it. Tools will adapt to our needs, and we will adapt to new tools. When it comes to placemaking, possibly the best way to make use of that technology today is to use it to involve everyone. A public forum that both informs people as well as gathering those people's lived experiences and expertise. A healthy, symbiotic relationship aimed at addressing the needs of both people and place. It's been pointed out often and correctly that previous methods of engagement for public spaces leave some people without a voice or unable to participate. In a world where digital tools are becoming more accessible, digital placemaking is the fix. Thank you for listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network, a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Our content consultant is Sanchita Rajvanchi. See you next time.